Welcome to Psychology Has It Backwards. This series will question the assumption that people are psychologically broken and need to be fixed. We will talk about how seeing people as innately healthy will change all of your interactions and outcomes. This is a true paradigm shift, and it simplifies the entire process of dealing with mental distress and allows for more profound and immediate changes. Aloha, this is Christine Heath. And Judy Sedgman. This is, I think, our 12th episode of Psychology Has It Backwards. 13th. And is it 13th? Oh, my goodness. Okay, 13th episode. Sorry. I, I guess I missed an episode there. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about addictions today. And one of the things that I am is I'm a, um, a master addiction counselor, and I've worked with people that have all kinds of addictions. I myself have had addictions, and I am here to say that understanding how to look at addictions differently will give you lots of relief and also help you to change. So hang in there with us today, and let's talk a little bit about how this is different. By and large, most addiction treatment is based on helping people to change their thinking or change their behaviors so that they can manage the urges or the ideas that they have that they want to continue doing whatever their addiction is. So I was a cigarette smoker. And when I was a little girl, my dad smoked. And so I would steal his cigarettes. And over time, I would smoke more and more. And when I was in college, I smoked a lot. And I was in my 20s, I smoked a lot. And then it became kind of um, uh, reports came out that smoking caused cancer and it wasn't a good idea and people weren't like smoking in public like they used to. You know, like we used to, I used to do sessions with clients and I'd smoke with them. That's awful when I think about it. <laughs> but at the time it was, everybody did it. Uh, one of our colleagues, Cindy Claypatch, said she used to do trainings and stand up in front of people and smoke while she was doing the training. And so it was, it was like something that everybody was doing, but at one point I realized it wasn't healthy. So I became what I call a closet smoker. So I would only smoke uh, when I came home at the end of the day and I wouldn't tell anybody that I smoked, of course, because I was teaching people how to be healthy. And then one day I remember that I ran out of cigarettes and I always had a cigarette to go to sleep at night, which is interesting because it's a stimulant. But I um, didn't have any cigarettes and I was too lazy to go to the store. So I thought, well, you know, I teach people to quit addictions. I can just quit this. And that's when I started to really recognize how much thinking I had about smoking and how real that thinking looked to me. But in the past, I had tried to kind of manage my smoking by only smoking five cigarettes a day or only at certain times. And, and I tried over time to, to kind of quit and it, it never did. But what happened for me was that I had a real change of heart. Like in that moment, I realized that I did not want to be living out of integrity with what I knew was a healthy lifestyle. And for whatever reason, that worked for me. And I then had to take my thinking on. So every time I would, I would go to work and of course I'd go to work and I wouldn't be smoking. And I didn't think about smoking actually during 
the day. And I'd come home at night and sit down in front of the television set. And I'd think, oh, a cigarette would really taste good right now. And it was like that thought had magic in it. It's like that thought had a real seductiveness to it, where it seemed like a cigarette would taste good. Now, all of a sudden, I kind of stepped back when I saw that thought, and I was like, oh my God, I think cigarettes taste good, and they absolutely do not taste good. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever thought in my life. <laughs> and and then I realized, like, no wonder I've been continuing to smoke. I have a thought that they taste good. So even though they don't, I keep going to smoking as a way to um relax as a way to deal with stress or to kind of manage the end of my day. And I, knowing that stress can't be managed by cigarettes, I realized that I had this thinking that somehow if I did this particular behavior, if I smoked a cigarette, that I would calm down. But the truth was, I just thought about calming down and then I'd calm down because of course, nicotine is a stimulant. But there's all this thinking that we get about addictions that is um, different. So one of the things that when you look at the addiction field, people are somehow troubled, like, how can you have an eating addiction, an addiction to a chemical like nicotine or alcohol or drugs, or gambling or working or sex, and have that be all the same thing. Like people are very confused about that. Like if it's biological, like frequently people say in in alcoholism treatment or drug abuse that your body has a way of reacting to the alcohol or drugs that makes you addicted. So it feels like the power over your addiction is in the drug. And then, you know, there's all kinds of things that people get addicted to. I mean, I had one guy that was addicted to reading books. I mean, he would literally walk in the door reading books, read through dinner, read, 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 read. And so when we're talking about addictions, I think what we're talking about are are ways that human beings try to manage a state of insecurity by doing something that they think will make them feel better. So if you don't have that kind of thinking about something, you're not likely to get addicted to it. In some way, shape, or form, that behavior looks like it's going to make you feel better. So in a sense, addictions are a human being's best shot at trying to feel better based on the level of consciousness they're living at, based on how life appears to be an outside-in experience. So we can be addicted to anything. We can be addicted to absolutely anything if we give that thing or that drug or that behavior the power to make us feel secure, happy, to feel good in some way, to feel safer in some way. And that's where we get tricked up is that we're looking at something in the outside world to take care of the insecurity we feel on the inside. You know, Chris, your story was very uh, interesting to me because I was a big time smoker for several years too. I didn't start that young, but I, when I was a senior in high school and then all through college, I smoked. And then I went to work for a newspaper and I, everybody smoked and the whole newsroom was smoke filled, you know, it's kind of, but then I got pregnant and I couldn't smoke. I mean, my body just 
was like one of those things where somebody discovers they love a certain food, but when they get pregnant, they can't stand the sight of it. So the whole time I was pregnant, I, I really literally could not smoke. So, and I would tell my friends, oh gosh, as soon as I have this baby, you know, um, I'm going to get a pack of cigarettes right away. You know, as soon as I'm through this pregnancy, I'm going to want to smoke again. So I came home from the hospital with my baby and I'm sitting in my house with my little baby in this cute little bassinet. And, you know, and and suddenly a friend of mine came to visit me and she brought a carton of cigarettes as a gift and something for the baby too. But anyway, so she said, oh, great. Now you can have a cigarette. And so she pulled it pack out of the carton and hand it to me and I started to open the pack and all of a sudden I was overwhelmed by this thought because the baby made a little sound and I was overwhelmed by this thought oh my god this baby has no choice about what air she breathes it's up to me and I just couldn't do it and I handed her the pack back and I said put it back in the carton I'm never going to smoke again And she said, I thought you couldn't wait. And I said, I know, but I really didn't realize my obligation as a mother until just now. (laughs) I can't do it. I can't be creating a smoke-filled room with a baby in it. And and she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you'll get over it. But you know what? I, I changed. That's the power of insight. You know, I just, motherhood became a higher purpose and calling to me than getting over my insecurity. I had plenty of insecurities about motherhood, but... You know, I wasn't going to solve them by smoking. And the funniest part about it was, is that I told my husband about it when he came home that night and he smoked a lot more than I did. And he said, well, I suppose you would like it if I stopped too. And I said, well, it's kind of counterproductive if one of us smokes and the other one doesn't. And he said, okay. And he threw his cigarettes away and he, he just stopped. And it was years before I realized the power of changing your mind. When you realize it's just I thought I wanted to smoke because it was something social that we did together with our friends. And when one of us wasn't going to do it anymore, the other one thought, oh, well, that's no big deal. It's very interesting. So uh, I and when I've told that story sometimes to people who uh, use other substances, they'll say, well, cigarettes aren't as addictive as, you know, like heroin. Or you don't understand because you've never been addicted to meth which is true but to me i I was saying like what would be the difference it's a thought that you have that this is really important to you until it isn't yeah absolutely like even in the in the 12-step recovery group they'll talk about the thing that you need to to live in serenity and to stay sober is a spiritual awakening and then they will have lots of things to do I mean, that's really what Bill W. did is he tried to develop a program that would best point people in the direction of having a spiritual awakening. And by spiritual awakening, it's not like you're like suddenly waking up to being spiritual. It's that your spirit sees what you're doing. Like you look at yourself and you realize like, what in the world is that about? And I think that people, um, you know, like, for me, I had a couple of addictions, actually. It's like I was also very addicted to working. I was working 80 hours a week easily and going a million miles an hour. And I had a food addiction. So I was a compulsive eater and I would be like so going so fast in my head and I would eat at the same speed. And eating to me was a way to feel better. 
right? Like I remember my mom handing me an Aunt Sally's cookie saying, when I was crying, saying, here, eat this, it'll make you feel better. I was like, oh, eating sweets makes you feel better. Okay, that's good. So when I was learning these principles and I was kind of, I'm still really thinking a lot about my weight and how I looked and it was that, that thinking was still pretty real for me. And I was, I got a little bit stressed out and I was on my way to the refrigerator. And on my way to the refrigerator, I thought, oh, wait a minute, I'm insecure. And eating is feeding my insecurity. Oh, I want to get rid of insecurity, not feed it. And honestly, that was the last time I was had that out of control feeling about food. Now, do I still eat sweets? Yes. But it, it's not out of control. Like I used to have to manage my obsessive eating because I'd eat like a pound of green beans or I'd eat a whole um a whole cauliflower at once, you know, because I was trying to like not eat things that would make me fatter, but I couldn't manage that compulsiveness of my eating. So, you know, it's, it, it's like, then I started to kind of wake up to how I'd created this world. Like I used to weigh myself on two scales twice a day, one to make sure the other one wasn't wrong. Right. And I, I like had to get rid of my scales. I had to stop looking at myself in the mirror. I, I had all this thinking about my lovability being connected up with my physical form. And when I realized that that was just insecure thinking on my part, that I just made that connection in my, my insecure little state of mind, then I could do something about it. You know, that's, and that's, I think that the, the, freedom that you start to see is that you can change anything you want to. Like, are there things that you get addicted to that might be harder to get off of than other things? Maybe. But that shift in your perspective of your addiction is the most important thing. Because if you do that, then whatever you need to change, it won't seem like it's so hard. You'll say, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm going through withdrawal about this. And you see it without being controlled by it. Yeah, you know, I had an interesting experience one time with with, uh, a person in a group I was doing. For years, I did groups uh, every week on the dual diagnosis unit at uh, West Virginia University Hospital. And um, so I had this, uh, this woman in my group who the first, the first day she came in, she was totally non-participatory. You know, she wrapped herself up in a blanket. She was almost like completely covered by this blanket and she just kind of huddled in her chair and she didn't look at me. She didn't look at anybody. She just ignored what was going on and she was like just in her blanket. So a few days later when I went back again, um, uh, she came to the group and I was decided, I had decided to play a Sydney Banks tape for the group. Uh, because I thought I just just occurred to me they, there was a TV there it was a you know a tape player and I thought oh, I'll just play a little bar, part of this tape and see what see what happens so I started playing this tape and I said just listen don't get too excited about it he has an accent you'll get used to it you know don't worry just listen sort of like you were listening to a symphony or a radio station or something and so they're they're all listening and she, her blanket drops away. And then she sits forward and she's like staring at the tape, completely 
caught up and engrossed in this tape. So when I turned it off, it wasn't quite finished. I was The tape was longer than the group, so I had to stop it. And she said, now, what did you turn it off for? He wasn't done talking. That's the first word she'd ever said in my group. And I said, I'm really sorry, but we're out of time and you've got to go to your next group. And she said, you know, that's the problem with this freaking alcohol program. They just push you from group to group to group. And just when you start feeling better, they, they turn the lights off and move you to the next thing. And she said, I want to hear the rest of that tape. And I said, you know, well, you have to ask the next next person that's coming into the group and or I'll bring it back next week. And I said, I'm, I'm curious to know why, why is it so important to you? She said, well, to be honest with you, he just really seems to care about me. And she said, I, he doesn't know me, and I don't even know if he's still alive. But she said, I'm watching this man talk, and I feel like he, he gets me. Now, he hasn't, hadn't said a word about alcoholism or anything, but there was that beautiful, you know, feeling that Sid always exuded, and she just picked right up on it. And it sort of dawned on her that everything else that was happening to her in this program was just shoving her from group to group, thought to thought, you know, thing to thing. And when she finally calmed down and somebody seemed to be really talking to her heart, then we want her to go to another group, <laughs> you know. And I, and I thought, gee, that, that's, there's a lesson there. And I remember having a discussion with some of the nurses about it saying, you know, maybe we're asking these people to do too many things in a day. And they said, well, you know, if they don't, if you don't keep them busy, they get depressed. And I realize now from the standpoint of the principles, the busier your mind is, the more likely you are to be depressed. Right. That's another way in which we see it completely differently. When her mind quieted down, she started to feel like she felt appreciated and she felt like she was somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's it's really interesting how you know it's kind of like looking at um, addictions as a sign of your innate health. Like like I knew, and people know that there's something not quite right. So they're looking for something to feel better, whether it's excitement, the excitement they get from. Um, sexual relationships or winning and gambling or the uh, altered state of consciousness they get from drugs, they numb out or they um, get full of energy. But there's something that changes in how they experience life. And that's what they're looking for because they're not feeling a deeper state of mental well-being. And so their little mind comes up with, okay, I don't feel so good. I'm not feeling that feeling that I know I could live in. So what can I do to get it? So we make up and we do whatever's in our memory. So if you're around, like I was lived with a smoker, smoking looked like a good idea. You know, um, everybody's got their own um, world that they live in. You get in with a certain friend group and like in college, you know, it's like we um, use drugs to to study more, to get beyond that. And then you start to realize that it, you're looking for something to help you to do better in life or to feel better in life or to experience it in a different way. So that's why I kind of always say that um, what we really need is Thinkers Anonymous because we're all addicted to trying to think about how to feel better rather than seeing that that's inside of us. Right. And the less thinking we do about it, the more naturally we revert back to a bit of deeper feeling. I think people just 
don't realize that they have that in them. You know, we get so carried away with all the external fixes in our life. I, I'll, I'll feel better when I do this or this will help me or, and that's kind of supported by the culture we live in. And, you know, it's kind of a shock when you realize, you know, I felt better yesterday when I took a nap and I woke up and I looked out the window and there was a little bird sitting in the bird bath, you know, and it was so cute. And there's those moments that we all experience in life that take us out of our regular thinking into a quieter, nicer place. And that's really what happens to people when they have an insight or when they have a moment when they realize, you know, what, I don't need this substance. There's something deeper than that inside of me. And with that, we will say goodbye for today. See you next week. Okay. Maybe we'll talk some more about it. I think maybe we should. This has been a really good uh, talk, and I think there's more to be said. Right. Aloha. Aloha. We hope you heard something new and that you will continue to join us to challenge the prevailing thinking about the possibilities for health in everyone. To subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at psychologyhasitbackwards.com. 